So we're going to be talking about this scripture today, and we're really going to focus in on, on a couple different, a couple of very specific phrases. And the way I want to actually start off today is I actually want to go back to the questions that Mike left us with last week. So if you weren't here, these will be new to you. If you were here, uh, maybe you processed through some of that during the week. But the first question he asked us was, who am I failing to love with the full love of Christ? And he talked about how critical it was for us to love and embrace people who are different than us. And then the second question that he asked us was, where am I failing to live and act out the faith that I profess. Those are heavy questions, you know. When he when he threw them out at the end of the of the gathering, I could hear, you know, the sort of collective intake of breath that you sometimes hear. <gasps> oh man, those are hard questions, right? And uh, I want to let you know that as challenging as those questions are, one of the great joys of leading this community or in being a part of it was seeing the way that we get this right. You know, like our community is large enough that we have some real diversity of um, like origins and political stances and, and beliefs. And I want to tell you that I know that we don't, we're not perfect. No community is perfect. But we get this right from my perspective a little bit more than what you might think. And, and so I, I saw this happen actually uh, at the end of Mike's sermon. I was sitting in the back just listening to him and at the end of the gathering, Mike kind of walked back to the back and I watched a, another guy from our community that I know he and Mike differ significantly politically. They're very far apart politically. And I was just sitting there and I watched uh, Mike stand there and I watched this guy just walk up to Mike and give him the warmest, biggest, encouraging hug that you could just see. And in that moment, it kind of summarized everything that I love about, about E3, when we can be a community that says, look, we're different people. And some of us see the world differently, but you know what? That does not have to be a barrier to us loving each other and encouraging each other. And I've seen that before with people like that in our community, that I'm like, oh man, you know, uh, this person and this person, they're, they're really far apart on this issue and this issue because I just know a lot of people. And yet I've seen them acknowledge each other's differences, sometimes acknowledge each other's pain and just be able to say, man, I'm here for you. And let's just like, let's just kind of remember to love and encourage each other. So we do an okay job of that. And actually, when I think about who am I failing to love with the full love of Christ, there's actually stories if we really stop there's actually stories from the church or from the world where we would say, you know what, that's actually happening a little bit more than, than maybe what culture might lead us to believe. It's very easy to think, oh man, nobody's ever doing this. Nobody's doing this anywhere. But if you really sit down and if you, if you sift through some of the outlandish stories, you can actually find encouraging stories where people are reaching across radically different aisles to embrace each other. You know, I, I remember reading a story, and it's not just about now. Like the, These stories go back for years and years and years. They're always happening, and I've seen them. I've read them. There was a story in the 80s and 90s of a, a Jewish family that lived in, in a community, and in their community lived a member of, of the KKK. This was a back... Uh, did everybody remember answering machines? Yeah. So this was back in the era of answering machines, and this Jewish family would come home, every day to a message from this member of the, of the clan. And he just spewed hatred and threats 
I hate you. You don't belong in this community. You're despicable, on and on and on. I'm gonna take care. I'm gonna do this to you. I'm gonna do this to your family. It's gonna be awful. And, and they were alarmed to say the least, you know. And, and they just kept navigating. What was this? What does this mean? Well, they found out that this, this member of the clan was actually a, a wheelchair-bound person with a very, very serious illness. And they said, man, what are we supposed to do about this? And they said, well, I think we're supposed to love him. And so they began to reach out to this person. And at first it just was not pretty because they would reach out and all they got in return was more hatred, more threats, just more spewing. Then they found out that he was getting so ill that he could no longer care for himself. His living situation was in jeopardy. And they said, well, what are we supposed to do? And they said, well, I think we're supposed to invite him to live with us. And so they opened up their home to him. And over weeks and months, they saw this guy's heart crack open. And all of a sudden, he like literally had a repenting, converting experience where he was like, I have gotten it so wrong. And he turned his life around. And I think if we sit there, we could say there's a lot of stories out there, maybe more than what we would be led to believe, of people who can manage to love over dramatic differences and see life change happen. But what I wanna talk about today is uh, there is a, a segment of people that is harder to love than anybody else. And we can make list after list of all the people that we could love with the love of Christ. But I would say that at the end of that list is uh, a group of people that is probably the most difficult to love and, most, and, and more in this room that you might think would say, I can't ever do that. And you know who that, that group is? It's us. It's us. I've been doing this long enough to know that a lot of us are really good at extending love and compassion and grace and acceptance to all manner of people on this planet. But when the night gets quiet and the distractions cease and we look in the mirror, the words that we speak to ourselves are words that we would never utter to another human being ever. And they're words that just say, you don't deserve to be here. You're not loved. You don't matter. And what I think is that John is, is getting at that with this little phrase, he uncorks something that I think we just have to pause and sit with. Because we can do a great job of loving other people. I've met people in this community that are the most loving, compassionate, accepting people, except to themselves. But that's not God's vision for our lives. It's not like we can get it right with everybody else, but then stare in the mirror and hate ourselves. The word that God wants to speak to us is a word that says, yes, love everybody. But God also wants to say, I have made you beautifully, wonderfully. And self-hatred, self-hatred is no better than other hatred. And I'm just gonna take it on faith that there's more than one person 
in this room that that might be part of their story. I'm taking it on faith. And so if that's not part of your story, God bless you. But I can guarantee you that somebody probably in your life, that is part of their story. So maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for somebody else. So uh, to do that, we're just gonna sit with a couple phrases. Um, and I wanna tell you this, a little, little heads up. I'm gonna call for a couple volunteers. So begin to steal your hearts. For those of you who might be led to volunteer, it will not be complicated. I'm just gonna give you a heads up. So first thing I wanna let you know is, uh, or, or draw your attention to is, the, 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 the text start out, starts out for today. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts in God's presence. Now, before we even get to the meat of it, I love what happens. You see, we've called this series, This Is How We Know. Because if you read the, the letter of 1 John, over and over again, John uses the phrase, this is how we know, this is how we know, this is how we know, this is how we know. You wanna know how God loves us? This is how we know. And it's just like this math equation. But we start talking about this idea of of how we should view our hearts and how God views us. I love the subtle change that John makes. Did you catch it? John says, this is how we will know. And before we even get to the meat of it, I wanna kind of just sit on that because that is a significant change because John is seeming to say, look, there's a lot of things that we can say, oh, we're gonna know this and we're gonna get it right and it's gonna be on the past and we can move on from it. But when John starts talking about how we view ourselves, he almost just kind of says, oh, this isn't a one-time event. It's not just about how we know. It's how we will know. Why? Because I don't know if you struggle with accepting yourself, but a lot of times you have to learn to do it more than one time. And John's saying, this is gonna be a part of your life for some of us. And he's saying, this is how you will be able to remind yourself. Anybody understand what I'm saying? For a lot of us, we have to work through and heal over time of how to love and accept ourselves. And John is like, I love how the Bible sometimes is so human. So I was like, I know you're gonna have to work through this one more time. It's gonna come around again, but this is how you'll know. So when you need it, this is, this is where it'll be. And then he gets into the meat of it. Again, uh, we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts in God's presence. And then this is it, this is it. Even if our hearts, what's the text say? Condemn us. God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Okay, here's the volunteer time. I need two volunteers. All you gotta do is stand here pretty much. So, awesome. Thanks, you guys just come right down there. This is, uh, um, this is gonna be great. What's that? Sucker one. Sucker one and two? Oh, come on now, it's not gonna be that bad. So, so this is important. Um, when we hear that phrase, our hearts condemn us. Our hearts need reassurance. If our hearts need reassurance, this is what you'll need to know. If your hearts condemn you, this is what you'll need to know. So that should tell you well, we have a problem as human beings. Our hearts need reassuring sometimes. And sometimes our hearts condemn us. That makes sense? Now, really what I wanna, what I wanna uh, drill down into here 
is what that means because the Bible is written in the first century. We're 21st century people. When we read a statement like that, we kind of just process 21st century information, which is fine. That's why the Bible is so beautiful. It's alive. But sometimes it's really helpful to go back to the first century and go, all right, what is really, what's John getting at here? All right, so I need, one of you guys going to be a 21st century person, one of you going to be a first century. It's not, don't get hung up on the age thing. Oh, man. Okay, you're, you're going to be the first century person, Stephanie. Okay. All right, so, so here's the way this is going to work out. When John says, when John says our hearts need reassuring, our hearts condemn us, it's the word cardia, which is where we get cardio. So hold that near your heart, Stephanie. All right, that's the, phrase, that's the word he uses, our hearts. So that's the first century part. Now we're going to flash into the 21st century. If you were just to kind of like from pop psychology, talk about what happens, what, what goes on in our hearts? What does our heart bring to us? What would you say? Life. Life? What else? Pop psychology. Not, not, not just physiology, pop psychology. Feelings. Jeremy, hold that near your heart. Don't sing the song, please. <laughs> so the 21st century part of us goes, our hearts need reassuring. Our hearts might condemn us, which we would go then, oh, our feelings need reassuring. Our feelings might condemn us. We might feel bad about ourselves, which is a legit thing, okay? The problem, guys, that John is trying to tell us is so much deeper than that, okay? Now, but to do that, we need to kind of take a little bit of a detour because 21st century people, uh, what, what does this part of our anatomy do for us? What happens up here? Everything, okay, that's a little bit too vague of an answer. What happens up here? Thinking, logic, reasoning. So hold that by your head, okay? 21st century people, this is the way we view our lives, we think up here, we feel with this, okay? This is not a 21st century text. So first of all, let me show you. So John uses the word cardia. The cardia means heart. Kind of pull that around there, Stephanie. So the thing, see, the thing in the first century, the heart is not the center of your feelings. The heart is actually the center of thought and your will. So right out of the gate, John's saying, this is not about feeling bad about yourself. This is about the totality of your being telling you you're not good enough. And that can be a tidal wave that is hard for people to get out from underneath. Your will, your thoughts, your entire being like condemning you. All right, now just for some perspective, let me take this from you. Hold that by your heart. Just for clarification, in the first century, where do you think feelings come from in the first century? Any guess? You're not gonna guess. Here, hold this, Stephanie. So Stephanie, here's where your feelings come from in the first century, a little bit lower. Hold it lower. Hold it lower. I'm going to make you pronounce it. All right, a little, 
That's where your feelings come from in the first century. In the first century. So if John wants to say just your feelings condemn you or your feelings need reassurance, your feelings aren't assuring, he would have said splagnachizomai. That's where we get the word spleen. The first century, that's where your feelings came from. Okay? But he says, no, it's your cardia. So, all right, hold that. We're almost there. So this is the situation we're in. But then, John also says, uh, God is greater than our hearts. And the word that he uses there for greater is the word that means stronger. Sometimes it means older, the elder. And I, I love that imagery. So when your heart gets out of whack, when your entire being is saying you're not good enough, you don't matter. In the middle of the night, when you're staring yourself in the mirror and all you see is blackness and darkness and, and, and regret and sorrow, there's somebody greater. And John says, God is greater than your being, your will, your thoughts. And what I want to do is explore what that looks like. Because that sounds like a great prescription, but some of us would sit there and we go, okay, but how? But how? Well, it, it actually comes back to a little bit of physiology still. So, when you start talking about uh, just the different parts of our brain, and, and this is going to kind of all come together. Um, Stephanie, you got to, let's put, let's put feelings down, okay? This is like inside out at E3 or something. I don't know, look. So we have logic here in the 21st century, feelings here in the 21st century. Cardia means will and mind, but there's, there's other things that God gives us, and, and, and it exists in the first century. So this is a head word, so this is a mind word. In the Bible, sometimes uh, they talk about logic and reason, and, and the, the writer will use the word dianoia. That literally means like how you parse things out, how you look at things, all right? But um, that's not what's in play here. There's another word that the Bible uses for a part of our brain. You can put that one down, Stephanie, put the... And it's the word noose. Now, if you've ever heard the phrase, if you've read the Bible, there's one time where a guy named Paul writes to a church and he says, you have the mind of Christ. Anybody ever heard that? Well, the word that Paul uses there is not dianoia. It's not like church, you have the logic of Christ so you can make good decisions. He says, you have the noose of Christ. And noose in the first century is a powerful, powerful word because it gets at the idea of like, yes, you can make decisions, but they're decisions that are somehow separate from like the whim of the moment. Anybody ever made a decision where like, like it was a logical decision and you made a call, but you're also really amped up emotionally. And then when your emotions calmed down, you were like, that was a wrong call. <laughs> the noose is the part of the brain, it's the way actually God makes decisions. It is separate from the emotional turmoil of the moment that just sees things clearly and says, 
this is a good decision, this is a bad decision, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. And if you're a 21st century person, like, I think the idea of like how your emotions can affect your decision making, we shouldn't need to explore that a whole lot. If anybody's ever made a bad decision out of an emotional moment, you've experienced like your noose kind of not being quite dialed in. But, but the noose is also a place where what we call a direct experience. Anybody, anybody ever had an intuitive moment where you just walked into a situation or you met somebody and you just instantly knew a good person, bad person? You just knew. That's the noose. So when Paul says, look, you have the mind of Christ, church, it's this, it's this intuitive, direct experience of God where God just like mainlines information straight into your being and you just know. And then you also are able to make wise decisions. Now, one way you can sum up this situation is that there's a war between our noose and our cardia. The cardia just sits there and says sometimes the entire being uh, will speak up and go, you're not good enough. You can't do this. God doesn't love you. These people don't love you. The noose that sits inside us, that God gave us, would say, that's a lie. And our intuition would say, no, 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 that's a lie. So what's going on? Well, one way I would just, you're almost done, I promise. One way the noose functions is it's like, it's like a couple of things. One way it's like a radio antenna. We still listen to the radio in our car sometime. And I don't know if anybody had been like driving back to Tallahassee down I-10 and maybe a game's on and, uh, and, and you're, you're, you're miles away and you're trying to get the game to come in. We don't have satellite radio. We have older cars. And you ever been like where you're, you're coming and, and the radio is like it's not there at all. It's just static. Then it gets a little bit better and you're on a hill and you can hear it and you go down the hill and then you can't hear it. And then the closer you get, finally you start to hear clearly. The noose is like a radio antenna for God. The noose is also like a window that needs cleaning. I cleaned my headlights for the first time in like three years last week. I'm like, I can see at night now. <laughs> the war between the noose and our cardia is, is in part because part of our problem as human beings is our, our antenna is crooked and the window between us and God needs to be cleaned. And the better you clean the noose, the better you straighten your antenna, the more uh, you can see through that window, the more you can see what God is doing and the more you can hear what God is doing. And the more you can say impartially and in an intuitive Holy Spirit, spiritual way, when the lies come up and when the cardia says, you're not good enough, the noose says, uh-uh, 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 not true but we need to fix the noose. All right. Thank you for holding pieces of paper. Your, your arm's stuck. So again, part of the thing that we want to do or that I want to do is just talk about like the idea that scripture acknowledges that we have a war within us. And one of the ways I wrote it down this week is that one of the first steps is to acknowledge that your thoughts and your feelings are not always your best friends. The noose tells me 
and has told me that there is a deeper reality to what I am thinking and what I am feeling. And when my cardia rears up and says, you're not good enough, God doesn't love you, the more straight my antenna is, the more tuned in I am to God, the clearer the image is between God and I, I can go, actually, actually, cardia, you're not telling me the truth right now. And I can say, the noose that God gave me, the mind of Christ, that's the thing I want to listen to. So, as we round, uh, the, the, round the corner and, and go to the communion table today, what I want to do is just kind of walk through how you get started with this. Because there's got to be a how to this. I can't just say, okay, you got this thing. Don't listen to this part. Listen to this guy. How? Well, let's start with the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, okay? This is a church. We believe in Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And I want to tell you a little bit more of how, and I just want to tell, if you don't know, this is the Jesus I believe in. And you can break it down into uh, essentially three ways that Jesus kind of walked around and reminded people of the deeper reality of who God is and who they are in God's eyes. And the first thing he did was he, he did something just called meal sharing. You ever read the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You know what he did a lot? He just ate. And when he ate, if you ever read the Gospels, what you find is that a lot of the dinners he had were with people who for which self-loathing and self-hatred was a legit reality. Prostitutes. People who have been tossed on the trash heap of society. Who have every reason to feel awful about themselves. And you know what Jesus did? He sat down and he wagged his finger at them and said, see it, no. The scenes at the meals that Jesus was a part of were scenes where he said, I love you. There is nothing that you need to do to earn my love. There's nothing you can do to earn my love. How about we just have a meal together? Jesus wants more for those people. But when he has a meal with a prostitute who's just weeping, he just says, I'm so glad you're at this meal. Let's be at this table together. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. Because uh, I think we, we think about what, well, Jesus, if he knows everything about me, which I believe he does, like how would he respond? This is the way I think he responds. These are the words that just rocked my life one day. If Jesus sat at your dining room table tonight, your dining room table tonight, with full knowledge of everything you are, everything you're not, if he laid out your whole life story with the hidden agenda and the dark desires unknown even to yourself, it would still be impossible for you to be sad in his presence. Why? Because you would encounter radical love. Radical love that just says, I know what you've walked. I know what you've seen. I know what you've experienced. And I love you in spite of it. The other thing Jesus did in his life was he told stories. See, a lot of us, 
because our noose is, is kind of warped and twisted and, and unclear, we actually project things onto God that are actually true of ourselves. So when we think of people who make a mistake in our world, we think, well, I know, like, when someone makes a mistake in my presence, I mean, it's hammer time and not in the, like, funky dance and pants thing. That is not the way God is. And Jesus just walks around and he tells people, let me tell you how God is. God is the guy that runs after the one lost sheep. God is the guy that when his son who rejected him and hated him runs off and he comes back without even like saying, I'm sorry first, God's the guy that runs out to his son and goes, I'm so glad you're back. That's the God that Jesus knew. That's the God that we know. And so Jesus just tells stories of who God is and how he's not like what we think he is. And then the last thing God does, or Jesus does, and the last thing that, and the thing that I'm gonna challenge you to do is pray. Is to pray. Jesus spends hours in prayer. And we always think that like prayer is the place that we tell God what we want. In my life, prayer is the place where I go to, for God to tell me who I am. For him to tell me who I am. For me to hear his love. Because I am just as capable of self-hatred and self-loathing as anybody in this room. And prayer is the battleground where you can let the voices that just tell you, no, no, you're not good enough. And you can sit with the Father that loves you and Jesus who died for you and the Spirit that lives inside you. And you can let those outside voices go down and the voice of love come up inside you. And that antenna that's, a, that's crooked that you can't hear God gets a little bit straighter. And the window between you and God gets a little bit clearer because you hear, oh my gosh, God loves me right where I'm at. And if that's possible, anything's possible. If that's possible, anything is possible. Jesus asked us to remember him through, um, you might have heard it as the Last Supper or the Eucharist or Communion. And today, um, as we go to the table, my word for you, my challenge for you is, this is the table that speaks a deeper word to the self-hatred that you experience. This is the, the, the place where Jesus says, no, 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 whatever word of hatred, of, love, of, of, of denial that you've heard, my word is deeper and it is a word of love because I suffered for you. So we're gonna open up the table. And if this, is a, if this is a thing in your life, the invitation is to come and say, I need Jesus' deeper love. I need the love that, that is greater and stronger than my cardia. God be greater than my will, my essence, my thoughts. God, put the word of love into my heart today. That's what Jesus does. So 
I guess uh, I just want you guys to know how much he loves you. I want you to know that every time you've stumbled, that you've fallen, every time that you've looked at something you shouldn't have looked at, done something you shouldn't have done, walked where you shouldn't have walked, talked to who you shouldn't have talked to, laid down where you shouldn't have laid down, I want you to know that Jesus does not condemn you for it. His love took him to the cross for you. For you. And he will not come down off that cross to wag his finger at you and go, see, I told you you weren't good enough. He says, it's finished. It's finished. And he would do it all over again for your sake. That's how deep his love goes. So today, come to this sacred table not because you must, but come because you might. Come because, uh, not to testify that you are righteous, but come because you sincerely love Jesus and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you're strong, come because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on God's grace, but because in your frailty and brokenness, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Don't come to express an opinion. Come to seek God's presence and to pray for the Spirit. We're gonna read some words together. Fancy church word called confession. But confession is just a way that we can level the playing field and we can all just kind of embrace this brokenness that we all struggle with. So let's read these words together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. If we confess our sins, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May God Almighty have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through, Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen.